Hello and welcome to the Free Life Community Church Podcast. My name is John DeLille, and I'm the communications guy at Free Life Community Church in Terre Haute, Indiana. Each week, Senior Pastor Dan Willis brings a rich, detailed, and relevant message grounded in Scripture, which is recorded on Sunday mornings and made available for you right here. You can find more messages at freelifecc.com or in the Google Play and iTunes podcast app. Hey, if you've benefited from listening to these messages, we ask that you try to help us out. You can help us out in two different ways. First, you can give us a rating in the app store that you use. Secondly, share this podcast with a family member, a friend, or a colleague. This really does help us to get these messages into the hands of the people who can really benefit from them. All right, without further ado, here's Senior Pastor Dan Willis. Uh, did you did you enjoy our What About God series? Did you? You ready for this new one we're starting today? Life Lessons from James. Listen, I'm, I'm not... I'm not I'm not kidding. This is, James is, is on it, okay? He, he's he's going to put it right out there for you. And, you know, this is what I found about people in life. Sometimes we like the truth and sometimes we don't. <laughs> kind of depends on how it hits us, amen? Well, James has a lot to say to us, you know. And uh, this first uh, sermon has to do with perseverance. Perseverance and winning through trials. Now, I suppose I'm the only one here that goes through trial, right? I suspect that all of you in some manner, in some way, have gone through a trial. Maybe even today, maybe yesterday, maybe this week. Anybody have a poor week? Well, not too many. How many are hoping that next week's even better? Yeah? Yeah, we always like that, okay? Trials come, don't they? We don't like them but they come. And it's not if, but when. We're going to hear about that in the message today. But if you, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 1, and uh, we'll begin at verse 2, actually. I want to give you a, a quick breakdown of James. Does anybody know who he is? Yeah, the, the half-brother of Christ, correct, and uh, was the executive pastor uh, of the church in Jerusalem, meaning uh, Peter was, I guess you would say, was given the task of of being the leader of the church, but James would have been second in command. He would have taken care of all the business of the church, most notably taking care of the indigent and the destitute, the widows, and those who couldn't care for themselves. That would have fallen to him, you see. And he was a compassionate person who did not believe in his brother as the Christ at first, okay? But when he became convicted that his brother was indeed the Christ, boy, that changed his life, amen? And it, as it did for all of us. Anybody? So Jesus makes a difference, doesn't he? Okay, so that's, that's what's happened. And so in, 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 in chapter 1, let's take a look at what he talks about concerning trials and temptations, uh, the first 12 verses. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom... He should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it would be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. 
His blossom falls and his beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, I'm not sure how you are following along if you were in, in, a, in a, uh, the Bible in, in written form or if you're on our, our Free Life Community Church app, which has any Bible you could possibly want on it. Uh, but, but basically, no matter what version you use, the message is the same, that we are to stand under trial because there's something different about the Christian, something that we have that others do not, that not only allows us to do it, but God expects us to do it. Amen? Amen. Big deal. Okay? A big deal for us. Now, I'm not here today to put down any religious belief systems. Please understand me that I'm not. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not I'm not about attacking other religions or other churches or other pastors. I'm just, I'm just not into that. Okay? But I don't think it's, it's rocket science to figure out that there are some differences of opinion as it relates to the Scripture by denomination, uh, by theology, and even by your own ideals. Agreed? Everybody has different interpretation of what they think the Scripture is saying. Um, so I'm not against religious beliefs, other ministers, preachers, evangelists, whatever. Not even TV evangelists. But here's the thing. I am here today in order to bring us our first message in this particular series, Life Lessons from James. Now, the church that James pastored or was executive pastor of began to grow rapidly throughout the world from the efforts of the Apostle Paul and many others who gave their hearts to Christ. And as they did, they couldn't contain themselves because God made a difference. It changed their lives. It turned it upside down and expanded it. And they were like, wow, this is amazing. I've got to go tell people what Jesus did for me. Amen? Now, you've heard it said many times by me that when people ask me, what's your God going to do for me? I tell them, I don't know. Okay, I mean, I do. But I tell them, I'm not sure. But let me tell you what he did for me. Because what he did for me is up close and personal. I know what he did in my life. Do you? Well, you should. And I suspect you will find that it changed it for the better, a lot better, because that's what he's in the business of doing. And so they took the gospel into the world. And over the years, there have been many offshoots from Christianity. Some have decided to stay directly grounded on the world or on the word in its entirety, while others have chosen to take the parts that appeal to them most, okay, and believe and live life on that particular section exclusively. Okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. People get excited about certain things in a manner and a way that the gospel has changed them. I'll tell you something else we do. We are a people of personal opinion. And we like what we like. In any church in the world, the music is probably the hottest topic, the worship. Why? Because everybody wants to go where they feel comfortable. They want to go and listen to the music or sing the music that they particularly like. Now, I have to tell you this. It really doesn't matter what the music is as long as the message is the same. The words are, are the key. So whether you like the old hymns, whether you like you know, the new contemporary stuff, or somewhere in between, it, it really doesn't matter. It's personal preference. But the message is the key. But people will pick a church or not 
based on the style of music in that church. I've seen it over and over again in 30 years of ministry. I've watched it. Okay? And I, I have to tell you, that's not why we pick a church. It shouldn't be. Now, I, you know, I know some of you might like some of the real hard, hard, rocky uh, Christian stuff like Skillet and those. I, I Personally, I can't understand what they're saying. But you know what? If, if you're into that, that's fine. As long as you're in Christian music, that's what's about for me. Anybody? Okay? And, and listen, you know, people say, you should never listen to secular music. That's not true. I mean, that's not true at all. Now, if it's got a poor message in it, I would say stay away from it. Right? Come on. Use good discernment. Use good judgment. Okay? But people make a decision on those types of things, and they do the same thing as it relates to, you know, what a church stands for or what they think is being taught there. They will pick and choose. And, you know, where the gospel hits you and what is important to you, uh, you're going to stand on that. You know, uh, my friend Billy Joe Henry at the bridge, he will tell you that he has a church full of people that, you know, were addicted in some manner, that were abusers, and have come to Christ, and they stand on that. That's a big deal. You know, so that's their story. That's what they share. God delivered me from this. Okay? That, we're all, we all do the same things in just a different manner. So whatever the gospel does for you, that seems to be your mantra. That seems to be your bedrock. Okay? And the same is true. Throughout history, it's been that way. Some people today believe in what we call the prosperity gospel. Again, I am not slamming any belief system or any particular pastors. You understand? Okay? Don't, and some people get offended when I talk about this stuff. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm not here to dispute it or those who proclaim it. I am simply here to look at the entire scripture and stand on the truth of what it says. Is that fair enough? Let's take a look at what the Scripture itself says. There are contrasts between the two ideals, and I think that's important that we would bring that out. Prosperity theology is a religious belief among some Protestant Christians who believe that financial blessings and physical well-being are always the will of God for them. Okay? They're always the will of God for them. They believe that. And that faith, Positive speech and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth, their physical health, and their emotional well-being. I've heard it spoken by TV evangelists over and over and over again. I've seen it talked about in books, on radio, you name it. The problem here is, is that the Bible doesn't promise that. What it does promise is tribulation for following Christ. Okay? Again, I'm not disputing anything. I'm not putting anyone down. I'm simply saying the Bible says you will have trial as a Christian. The prosperity gospel does not teach that. Now, either they're just leaving it out or they don't believe it. Okay? Now, this idealistic theology began with Oral Roberts and was championed by Kenneth Copeland, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, uh, Benny Hinn, and Pat Robertson for many years. Now, these are, these are, not, these are great people. I, I, listen, I mean, Jim and Tammy had their problems, but you understand what I mean. Okay? These are, these are people that spread the gospel for years. I, I, I think that's admirable that they've done that. More, more recently, those famous preachers who embraced it are uh, Creflo Dollar. Anybody seen him on TV? Uh, T.D. Jakes, you heard of him? Joel Olstein, certainly you've heard of him, okay, and Paula White and many others. 
Again, I'm not disputing these speakers. I'm simply reading the Word of God, okay? And through the Holy Spirit and spiritual discernment, I'm trying to get to the truth. In light of that, what should be our attitude, my friends, towards suffering for Christ? Well, if you've been taught your whole life by your pastor or through a TV evangelist that if you come to Christ and you give vigorously uh, to His cause that you won't suffer any of that stuff, you're going to be pretty disappointed when it comes. Because the Bible says we will, and this alternative theology says we shouldn't. So clearly, there's going to be a problem within. You're going to, you're going to fight within. What's, you're going to be angry with God. What, what's the deal, God? What's the deal? I'm suffering here, and I shouldn't be. Because I gave, and I've been doing, and I've been listening. Right? There's a conflict there. So what happens when it comes? Well, I don't know. But here's what I am going to do. I'm going to take the scripture right here in James, tear it apart, verse by verse, word by word, take a look at what James says, go to the original Greek and say, okay, what was meant by those words and where does it make a stand today? How about that? Fair enough? God says you should have a joyful attitude no matter what. Well, gee whiz, when, when things aren't going so well, you don't necessarily have one. Anybody? Now, you've heard me, you know, everybody, you all know how much I love snow, right? Just love snow. I, listen, I, I, I don't ever, hardly ever want to go into the state of Michigan because it's too far north and there's too much snow and I don't like it, okay? So, when God sent me south, I was happy. So I've been here 18 years. And if I move again, I'm hoping to be further south yet. Because I, I have no interest in going back to South Bend or any place, you know, that has snow like that. In fact, I don't visit my hometown much because I don't like the snow. We get some here, but not like that. And it doesn't stick around like it does there. When I moved here, people said, well, you know, how many inches do you get up there? I said, inches? Feet of snow. And I remember at my last church, uh, of course, it was over 18 years ago, almost 20 years ago now this happened. Uh, but some of you have heard it, some of you haven't, so I'll tell it again because it, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, but I remember it snowed pretty hard, and we had uh, a series of about, uh, I want to say, 15 steps that went in, into, the, into the church from the, from, the, from the sidewalk. It was a church that it had a theater seating all the way around, um, and it was kind of a rounded kind of sanctuary. Um, and it was very beautiful, built in the 1800s, gorgeous sanctuary. And, and it had this, this big set of stairs, wide stairs that went, you know, a concrete that went up into the front two double doors of the church. And then it snowed, and I came out of my office to the front door, and the, the mailbox was right there. And the, the mailman hadn't come yet, but I knew that probably the mail from the day before was there. And so, okay, I'm going to step out and get us open the door. And, and I looked, and there was no steps. They were just, it was just a, you know, just a perfectly, uh, yeah, just an incline where it, it, it filled the steps and made it just smooth there. And then it had rained, you see, uh, and, and, and some ice and things, and it was, it was very slick. It was just beautiful there. And there were kids out across the street, and they were playing and doing their thing. And I'm like, okay. And I realized as I stepped out that it was kind of slick at the top of the stairs. And I thought, well, okay. So they had these big pillars in the front. So I put my arm around the one pillar, and I stepped around, and I just so I didn't slide, you know, and I get the mail out, and I did the, the, the dumbest thing ever. I took my hand off the pillar. And I turned to look at what it was, and the kids said, we're doing something. And so I turned to look at the children, and that's all she wrote, brother. And I'm telling you, I went, down. listen, it was like 
I never even felt the steps. I don't think I hit them. I think I was just sliding down that ice, and I was going down, down, down. I hit, I hit the uh, sidewalk, and I remember flipping over and into the street where there was all this foul swill of slush and ice and, and splash, and it, it went all the place. And I don't know exactly what I said, but it probably wasn't good. It wasn't a Marine Corps moment, it was just a moment. But I'll tell you this, okay? As I sat soaking my wet behind in that puddle, and the kids are going, hey, hey, I looked over them and I thought, you cherubs. Right? With a smile on my face, there. Right? You little. You know, they thought, I didn't think it was a bit funny. And I'm thinking, I'm freezing here. And, and, and here's James saying, consider it joy whenever you go through trial of all kinds. And I'm sure I sat there and said, oh, goody. Of course I didn't. And neither would you. I mean, right? You, and that's just one thing. I can't, even, I can't even begin to write down all the things that have happened to me in my life. And that's not really a trial. You know what I mean? I've had some. Have a joyful attitude no matter what. I don't think God had my attention at that moment. And yet, He wants it. Hmm. When you face trials, what trials? What trials are we talking about? You see, trial comes from the Greek word as a noun, perosmos. Perosmos. And it's found in verses 2 and 12, and then the verb form of it is found in verses 13 and 14, and it's translated tempted. When it's used to reference people, the, the word means either a test, a trial, or a temptation, which in fact is an enticement to sin. <laughs> now, none of you have ever gone through that, have you? An enticement to sin, a temptation to do sinful things or act a sinful way, according to God. We've all done it, friends, every last one of us. But here, James uses it in a manner that means sufferings for righteousness' sake that try our faith and perseverance. In fact, James is clear, not if they come, but when they come. You're going to go through them. It isn't an option. He is absolutely saying that as a Christian, you will face trial and you will face temptation and it will entice you to sin. Now, you don't have to, but it will entice you to do it. I'm tempted by a lot of different things, right? We're all tempted by a lot of different things. You, you know, I have this, this terrible uh, problem of an addiction to coconut cream pie. It's a fact. I know it. I admit it. And, and I, when, when Bev at Bev's Diner, make, she makes homemade pies on her, on Thursdays when she makes coconut cream pie, it's a good idea if I don't go because it's probably warm. And if it is, I'm going to want it. And I shouldn't. I shouldn't have it because too much of it's not good for me. And I don't want one piece. I want two. I'm, I'm admitting it. So, you know, you should stay away from things that aren't good for you. and You know you shouldn't do, but I'm still enticed, right? I'm not supposed to eat popcorn anymore because, you know, I got colon problems, what have you. But listen, I'm the guy that go to the movie theater just to walk in and get the popcorn and walk back out. I'm, I didn't have to go to the movies. I would just get the corn. Anybody like popcorn like that? I can go, listen, and I never knew a rib place, you know, a barbecue place that I could drive past. That's how bad I am with it. 
Now, I know this is a poor time to be talking to you about food. But the fact is, that's my vice. I like those things. I like good ice cream, too. Okay? I'm, 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 you know, and some of you are thinking, man, my vice is a lot worse than yours. Maybe they are. I don't know. But I'm enticed by those, those smells, by the way it looks and how I know it's going to taste. Anybody? And I'm disappointed when it doesn't, you see. But that's, that's my thing. Clearly, we're going to face suffering, but Jesus also taught us in the Lord's Prayer that we must strive to avoid these enticements to sin. And we're going to have to ask God to help us. He says in Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not what? Into temptation, but do what? Deliver us from evil. It actually, in the original text, says from the evil one. Okay? Yeah, I think so. I want to be delivered from the evil one. Does anybody? Okay, this is what we're talking about. And yet the Bible tells us it's even more and deeper than that because we should rejoice in the sufferings that try our faith. Not just stay away from them, but when they come, rejoice when you're going through them. <laughs> right. Do you see? I mean, I mean, this is one of those things we've got to talk about because I think we read it and say, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. But let's face it, not very many do it because we don't want to rejoice during trial. In fact, we want to, you know, be upset about it. We want to complain. And we want people to feel sorry for us. Tell me we don't. Oh, I'm the only one, right? <laughs> Guys, come on. I'm thinking, yikes. Matthew 5, uh, 1 Peter 4, back up this concept, which is definitely uh, why James commands it. And not only that, he lived it himself. In fact, in verse 3, James specifically defines perosmos as a testing of our faith. In other words... God will allow such trials, my friends, get this, into our lives in order for us to gain victory through spiritual power. God will allow these things into your life so that you will gain victory through spiritual power. It's important for you to understand, and this is why. Because it builds an even deeper faith and spiritual connection to God when you do it. God wants you to rely on Him. He wants you to know where your help comes from. David knew it. David says, where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord. He knew. My question is, do I know where my help comes from when I go through trial and through his spiritual power, I defeat the enemy or, or get out of what I was going through and I'm, and I'm moved back into the status that I want and all of a sudden it was just half a sense. I was lucky? I don't think so. God was there. And he's the one that did it, you see. That, my friends, goes against what the prosperity gospel teaches because you shouldn't have been there in the first place. And if you're going through trial, then there's something wrong with your Christianity. That's what they're trying to tell you. I struggle with that because that's not what the Bible says. James says you're going to go, the deeper in Christ you get, the more it's going to come because the devil wants you off your game. Okay? So basically, to me, the prosperity gospel goes against what the Bible's teaching. That or the people that are going through trial... There's something wrong with the relationship with Christ. And I don't think that's accurate. Because, friends, my goodness, every time I go through trial, that would mean that I'm separated from God. And I'm telling you, that's when I draw the closest to Him. Me, I do. And He may not take it away, but I know He's there. He's with me every step of the way. Anybody? See, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Now, I'm not saying that we should seek persecution. I think some people do. I think they think that the more stuff they go through, the more holy they are. No. No. No, not necessarily. 
Just because we go through trials doesn't mean we should seek them. In fact, persecution and tribulation come to us naturally as well as willfully. Now, I'm going to explain that to you in a minute because you've got to get this one. Friends, I know this is a lot. I know this is a deep message. But you know what? I'm a <laughs> professor of theology, okay? I'm going to teach you the depths of this stuff, okay? You need to understand. I think the church has been too shallow for too long. Too shallow for too long. And we need to get this stuff. It isn't just about love and grace. Those things are amazing and wonderful, and I'm glad for them. But there's going to be trial. There's going to be temptation, and there will be judgment. Amen? Okay, so let's talk about, talk about the way it is. See, natural tribulation comes to us because life is life, <laughs> Right? I mean, that thing that happened to me on those front steps of that church in Decatur, Indiana was a natural thing. Now, I could blame Satan for it, and maybe he did give me a little push. I don't know. I mean, I watched the Christmas story, you know, and, you know, you do remember that, right? Okay, I would say, okay. So, I mean, you could get a little nudge, I guess. And I'm, and I'm, there are times in my life I know Satan was there doing it. I know. And sometimes maybe I didn't recognize it. But I think this was just a happenstance of life. I just think I just slipped, did a dumb thing, and wiped out, and, you know, hey, it happens. We've all been there. And let's face it, life isn't always hunky-dory, is it? But willfully, because we are Christians. See, there's a willful program to attack you. You understand? God says there is. Jesus said there is. The Scriptures are full of those things where the enemy is against you. Yes? God has said that the evil one will come after us because we belong to God. John 15 and 2 Timothy 3. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. But as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. I have given them your word, and the word has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Everyone who wants to live a life in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. Friends, I have looked at that verse every way there is. I've taken it apart by the Greek every way there is. It doesn't mean anything but what it says. If you're a Christian and you want to live for Christ, you will be persecuted. It doesn't matter how much money you give to the church, you will be persecuted. I'm not saying don't give money to the church. <laughs> Please don't hear me say that. Because everybody's got a tithe. That's a fact. And if you don't, there's something wrong with Christianity, and that's a sermon for. Yeah. But friends, here's the deal. You will be persecuted as a Christian. Now, we don't want to hear that. I certainly don't. And a lot of times, we will choose not to do something because the consequences are too great. But I'll tell you that the benefits are greater than the consequences when it comes to Christ. Anybody? Okay. So here's the thing. More to the point, Jesus was clear about this thing called trial. He said in John 15, 21, 23, They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He just said that people out there, in today, especially in today's day and age, have no excuse for the penalty of sin because they have heard or should have heard it. Okay? He just said that. Now, 
He says specifically, whoever hates me hates my father as well. So if you reject the gospel of Christ, you hate the father. So anybody that says that you don't have to come to Jesus to come to the father, well, that's also a false doctrine of theology, isn't it? So who are they? He keeps saying they. Who's they? I mean, I'm one of those inquiring minds. When I see something in Scripture, I'm like, well, what are we talking about here? Who's they? Well, society outside of Christ. And who do they belong to? According to Jesus, Satan. Who is the ruler of this earth? Satan is. So if they don't belong to God, who do they belong to? Well, that's easy. Satan. They will say they don't. They think they don't. But the fact is, Jesus is saying, if you don't belong to me, and therefore the Father, then you belong to this world, which means you belong to the one who rules it. That's Satan. But see, people won't believe that. They, they, there's somehow this middle of the road somewhere. No such thing. Because when Christ comes, you are either in or yeah, in or out. There's no, inner, there's, no, there's no middle of the road. You will make a decision. If you don't, it'll be made for you. Amen? Does the Christian church believe that? Yes, it does. And those that don't aren't Christians. Real simple. Okay? Are there extenuating circumstances? There might be. But Jesus doesn't talk about it much, does He? So if they belong to Satan, that means they're lost. And since they've rejected Jesus Christ, they have no excuse to stand on any more than Satan does. That's scary, friends. They're going to have excuses, but they're not going to stand on them. I mean, look at all the excuses we get when you invite somebody to church. Look at the excuses you get, why they won't come. Right? Why they don't need religion. Right? Matt, am I right? How many times? See? You see, their future is the same as Satan. And, of course, Satan hates us. Why? Because he wants you to compromise your faith and your behavior because misery, I guess, loves company. The Bible says he wants to take as many of us with him as he can. He's doing a pretty good job, too, isn't he? Okay. And and this brings me to my next point, because our values determine our evaluation of a suffering Christ. Our values determine our evaluation of suffering for Christ as well. And that's important. 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Now, that's huge. Okay? And you need to understand what I mean by that. It's a tough one, but it's got to be explained. And it's actually pretty easy to grasp once you understand it. Your value system will determine your attitude. Did you know that? Come on. Your value system determines your attitude, doesn't it? In the United States Marine Corps, we have a saying, you don't mind, it don't matter. Am I right, Craig? Am I right, Marine? I've got a few more Marines here. Where are my Marines? Uh, some of them's out of town. Anyway, you don't mind, it don't matter. It's a fact. Now, I'm sure the other branches have the same types of things. But, you know, so in other words, I, my attitude toward whatever I'm going through determines everything else. Okay. You don't mind, it won't matter. The problem was, I usually minded. (laughs) Right? We usually do. We're going through trial. We usually do. But our value system is huge because if you do something wrong and you know you did something wrong, 
then punishment comes, and even though you don't like it, you'll understand why you're being punished. Right? Now, you're going to make an excuse for yourself. That's probably not going to work. But you at least understand why you're being punished. But if you don't know you've done something wrong, or you don't agree that what you did was wrong, then when punishment comes, you won't understand it, and you'll see it as unfair, and you'll rebel against it. That's the truth. I've seen it time and again. Every ball team I've ever coached, every wrestling team, every football, every baseball, I've seen it time and again. And so have you. But you see, friends, the same is true here spiritually. Nobody wants to suffer, but the benefit of belonging to Christ is worth whatever trial we're going to go through. It's worth every single bit of it. You don't think of it when you're going through the trial, but you realize that if you're going through trial because you belong to Christ, because that's what happens to you, then bring it on. Because I would rather be with Christ and go through the trial than be outside of Him and have no trial. You understand? So we're going to suffer with and in Christ and sometimes for Christ. The Bible says we will. But our value system is going to evaluate the trial, and we'll see that it was worth it, and that brings us joy during and after. See, nobody, not even Satan, can steal your joy. Unless you give it up. Not when it comes to Christ. It can't be done. Now, you've told other people, you're stealing my joy. I've known people that just suck the life right out of you. Anybody? They're always in a bad mood, always upset, always whatever. And whatever joy you have, you get near them, and pfft, it's gone. Right? But here's the thing. But that, that, that's a false statement because the fact is you chose to let that happen. They, they can't take it from you. Somebody once told me, can I lose my salvation? Yes, you can. I know there's some doctrines that teach you can't. Yes, we believe you can. But here's the thing. It can't be taken from you. Once you are saved... I, I believe in eternal security, friends. I do. I, I, and I, I, get, I, I flip out some people to Winston Church when I say that. I believe in eternal security. I believe in it because I believe once I'm saved, that's up to me. Once I've received it, it's up to me. I made the decision to keep it. I made the decision to take it. And if I give it up, that's on me. But no one can take it. They can take my life, but they can't take my salvation. Praise God to that. Amen? That's the way I see it. And so as I look at this scripture... What James is trying to teach me is this. Trials produce triumph. This is how we win. We win through triumphance, triumphancy. You see, we first have to have an understanding mind. And that's, you know, let's face it. Have you ever talked to somebody and, and you're, they're like, and you know darn well they don't have a clue what you're talking about. You, know, you, you have a conversation back and forth with them and, you're, and you explain it over and over and over again and they just are not getting it. Yeah? Teachers, does that happen every day for you? Huh? Uh-huh. Kind of happens for pastors and congregations, too. <laughs> you guys are pretty good. But here's the thing. We have to have an understanding mind. Now, we remember back in a couple series ago, we talked about that there are different types of understanding. There's the head understanding, there's the heart understanding, right? And some people are one or the other, but God says through the Scripture, you've got to have a balance of both, Right? Balance of both. Society doesn't understand the things of God. Agreed? Which is why they don't see the bigger picture. And when difficulty comes, whether it's natural or willful, and they likely won't know the difference, I might add, they'll chalk it up to just being life, and they'll determine it was unfair. 
because they didn't think, feel like they did anything wrong to deserve that. Friends, bad things come to people who do good. It's part of life. Either it's something you did on your own and didn't see it, or somebody else did it to you, or the devil's been working. But it happens. And listen, you can do all of the right things and go through trial. Amen? Amen. I have. Have you? So they'll say it's unfair, but it's mostly just due to the entitlement society that we've read. Because everything good should come to me, because, I, I, because I'm me. I deserve that. No, you don't. No, you don't. You don't get to determine what you deserve. We want to. And let's face it, we would be generous with ourselves, wouldn't we? <laughs> I think we would. But see, not only do we have an entitled attitude these days, but also... People don't understand why things are happening, and so they won't take responsibility for it either. Because it's never their fault. I've known people that no matter what happened, you know darn well it was their fault. What they did caused them to be in this predicament, but they feel like they did nothing wrong, like it's not their fault. And you won't get them to admit it's their fault. They will never take responsibility. And it's a pretty sad day when it happens to people in the church. And it has. But the Bible says that we as Christians are to be different. Why? Because we have the answers. That's why. One, because we know it's coming. The Bible said so. And two, because sometimes God allows it. Now, I know you don't want God to allow those things in your life. And it's not always for punishment. Sometimes it's to adjust your, your attitude. But there's a third reason. Because we get God power to get through it. That's huge. That builds spiritual character. That's what God's trying to do. Paul says in Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. So can you know the will of God? Yes. But most people say they can't. That's not what the Bible says either, does it? And since we have this knowledge through the transforming spiritual power over our minds, well, we have the understanding. Why? Because we know. Well, what do we know? That's a fair question. What exactly do you know? And I can tell you, sometimes I look at people and it ain't much. But it ought to be because the answers are here. There are some things in the Scripture we don't understand. I get that. I get that. And, I, and the Bible indicates that there's nothing we cannot know about the kingdom of God except for one thing, and that's the hour of His return. Other than that, we can know it. Now, does it mean we understand it? No. Has it been revealed? Yes but we probably aren't that savvy to grasp it. I get that. And I, Paul even says it. You know, when you, know, you want meat, but what you can really handle is milk. It takes, it's a progression in your spirituality, just like you, know, you wouldn't put you know, quantum physics in, in a second grader's classroom. Unless that kid's brilliant, right? But chances are, I'm not going to quite grasp it. But the day will come progressively where they will. Now, some of us, they're never going to be quantum physicists, Right? So maybe that was a poor choice of, you know, but you get what I'm saying. But you learn progressively and you can build on the things you learn. And finally, you're at a place where you understand these things. Spiritually, same thing. God does the same thing. Problem with it is we feed everything but the spiritual. We want to stay dummies as spiritual, as spiritual beings. Nobody wants to be a dummy in society, but spiritually, eh, we don't much care. There's a problem. And that's the point. So what do we know? 
I mean, God's asking you, what, what should you know? Well, you will be tested. <laughs> That's what I know. You will be. Why? Because he said so. God said, you will be tested. And I'm, I'm walking proof of that. Are you? What else do we know? That because of Christ, we have faith. Aren't you glad of that? Faith gives us an assurance based on evidence that we can trust. Hebrews 11, 1, 3, and 6 says this. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. And there might be the key. He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. You see... Our faith produces patience. Now, let's face it, we don't have a lot of that sometimes. I'm not real patient, are you? You know I'm not patient in the car. Everybody knows I am not patient in the car because everybody out there drives way too slow because I'm always in a hurry to go where I'm going. And I look at it this way. That's just dead time to me in the car, okay? Because I've got someplace to go, something to do, people to see. And the fact is, any time in the car is dead time. So what I have to do is turn it into positive time. But Mom Paul Kell in front of me won't let me. <laughs> now, you know that's true. You're like that. And that's a poor attitude sometimes. I get it. So what I've done is learned that what I need to do is turn it into positive time and spend time with him. Because when I do that, it changes my attitude. And I start to realize that maybe Mom Paul Kell will have cataracts. Or maybe, or maybe their car just doesn't go any faster than that. <laughs> right? I've seen, I mean, they look pristine on the outside, but they haven't done anything to it because they never drive it, and it's blowing black smoke all over the place, you know. And I'd like to get in and just drive the snot out of it, and boy, that'll open it all up. <laughs> right? But I mean, right, really, I mean, see, everybody, you, you can't know what's in the mind of that person in front of you. You can't know what they've gone through. You can't know why. Now, some people are just poor drivers, I know. But, you know, is that really what makes or breaks your day? It shouldn't be. Because when we have patience, it means we'll have endurance, we'll have strength, we'll have dedication and commitment, and finally, then comes the perseverance, you see. And this will make us better Christians. Why? Because God says so. God says this will make you a better Christian. If God said it, we ought to listen, Amen. Romans 5, 3, and 4, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character produces hope. And hope, my friends, leads us to the understanding that we are redeemed, we're saved, we're going we're gonna to go to heaven when the time comes, and no matter what, nothing can shake us from it. And aren't you glad of that? Which is why the Apostle Paul said, for I am convinced that neither life, nor death, nor angels, or demons, neither the present or the future nor any powers, nor any height or depth, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And how do I know that? Point three, because our surrendered wills are perfect. Because our surrendered wills are perfect. Now listen, you know I get upset when people say, I'm not perfect, I'm never going to be. Wrong! That's false. That's, that's satanic teaching. When you're presented to the Father, you are presented perfect. Why? Because Christ made it so. Where I fall short, He's filled in the gaps. Anybody? And aren't you glad of that? In this life, I might not be perfect, but I'm going to strive my best to be as good as I can be. And the rest is up to Him. 
but you've got to be willing to let him, you see. You see, friends, did you know that God wants you to be perfect? How many of you, how many of you that's a new concept to you. You didn't know God wanted you to be perfect. How many of you thought you could never be perfect? I talk to Christians all the time. I've talked to Christians from other churches that say, oh, I, we, 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 we can never be perfect. Really? The Bible? I tell them, turn, turn, turn to that verse and show me where it says you can't be perfect. Or you'll never be perfect. Well, it's in there. I know. I read it. No, you haven't. Because if you did, it isn't in this scripture. It's not there. So what does it say? I mean, don't you want to know what it really says? Matthew 5.48, Hebrews 6.1, listen, cl listen closely. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you couldn't be perfect, would He command you to be one? No. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God. In other words, you should be well past that. You should be past that sinful stuff that you were doing. Get, get out of there. Move forward. You might not be perfect, but you'll be working toward it because God says, be perfect. Amen? The fact is, spiritual patience produces perfection. And it's more than clear that God wants us to not only be perfect, but resolve to do something about it. There might be the problem. Okay? We'll give up because we think we can't. And the devil will tell you that you can't. So what's the use? So we'll just stop. And God says, no, no, no. No. On your own, you can't. But through me, you can. You see, friends, it isn't enough just to get saved. I know some people think that's all, that's all there is, and that's all they preach. That's not enough. God doesn't want you just to get saved. Did you think that? Do you think Christians think that? I do. I watch them all the time. And I think, well, yeah, that's great, but what does the rest of the Bible say? It says more than that. We have to work at our spiritual lives. This is why Hebrews says we must move past the elementary principles of salvation. We have to get into middle school and then advance to high school, and eventually God wants us in graduate school. Now, you may not have done that on this earth, but in His kingdom, He wants it. Everybody, you see. This goes way beyond college. God isn't kidding, and it isn't optional. It's not optional. And if you thought it was, there's something wrong with your spirituality. I'm telling you. Because if you aren't growing, what are you doing? Absolutely. Does the Bible say that? Yes. And I would rather look back at what it says and stand on that alone. How about you? So what is perfection anyway? I mean, we, we look at other people and try to figure out what it is, and you'll never find it there. <laughs> we all aspire to be somebody else. When you were growing up, it was a musician or a, you know, a, an athlete or, or a movie star or who knows what. But movie stars are the most deluded people out there because they live a different life every day, right? No, I'm just kidding. But you know what I mean. There's some, there, you know what? Some of, those, some of those people are talented now. I ain't kidding. I couldn't do that. But here's the thing, friends. God wants you to be you. He made you you. He just wants to improve the version that you've become. Okay? It's real simple. You see, simply put, we've attained an end or purpose and are complete or fully developed. 
The Bible says we are whole, complete, undamaged, intact, and blameless. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, Paul says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, get saved, but then advance. Because if you don't, there's something wrong. That means something's holding you back. And you don't want to do that. Because Jesus said, you're going to come to me and say, what about this and what about that? And I'm going to say, away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. But I got saved. Yep, but that's all you ever did. And you lost it somewhere along the line because you refused to advance in it. Now, I'm paraphrasing, but I believe that's what he's going to say. And there are people out there teaching them churches today that that's not true. And it is true. Do I hope I'm wrong? Yep, but I'm not. I'd rather know what I'm talking about and live life so it won't matter anyway. How about you? I'd like to live life so that I know. I know that I know that I know. Anybody? Friends, this is why salvation alone isn't enough. God expects more, and He wants to sanctify us through and through so that we're blameless at the Lord's coming. John 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. You sent me into the world. I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. You see, this is also why compromised Christianity, love and grace only Christianity, or a prosperity gospel will never, ever work. Jesus was only sanctified because he was completely obedient to the Father and the Father's commands. You understand that? If he hadn't been, he wouldn't be because he was a human. And his Godship would not have held him to it. But because of his Godship and the Spirit within him, he chose to do it. And by the grace of God, he got through life blameless and then went to the cross for you and me and came out of the grave because of it. Friends, I'm delighted that my Lord did that on this earth in his humanness. He was exposed to everything we are and more, and he still stood firm. And that's all he's asking you to do. You see, we can only reach this place in him if we too are completely obedient to the Father and his commands. This only happens by being sanctified in the truth of the word, all of the word, not picking and choosing, all of it. Jesus himself said so. And that, my friends, is the absolute truth and anything else is simply false. It's just simply false. And if anybody wants to teach you that, get them to me. Have, make an appointment with me. Sit down. I'll, I'll sit down with them. And I'll say, let's, let, let's not talk about what we want to believe or what we think. Let's open the Word of God and find out what it says. Fair enough? Because you can't go wrong there. You can't go wrong there. I found that it served me well in my entire life of ministry and even before that. The Word of God never lies. Anybody? Trials, my friends, produce perfection. If. <laughs> Don't you hate that if? There's always an if. If we pray for wisdom. If we pray for wisdom. Remember that James says there are two kinds of wisdom, which we'll get into in a later sermon in this series. James 3.17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Charles Spurgeon once said that heavenly wisdom is resolutely good judgment in the face of the demands made by humanity and specifically by the Christian life. I think that's brilliant. Well, he was a brilliant guy. Paul says that we study for knowledge and then we pray for the wisdom to apply it. How about that? 
There you go. You study for knowledge, then pray for the wisdom to apply it. And maybe even more than that. 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17, Paul says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know that those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Did he leave anything out? No. Every good work. James then tells us in verse 5 that God gives us wisdom, get this, generously. <laughs> I look around sometimes and I don't see much generous wisdom. But it isn't because God didn't offer it. Amen? It isn't because He didn't offer it. In fact, He says He gives it freely without finding fault in us. And I, I find that fascinating. God gives wisdom to us generously and doesn't find fault in us. What does He mean by that exactly? Have you ever wondered that? Well, I, I did some pondering on, some thinking on that. Now, I, that's true. I put these sermons together around Christmas time. But here's the thing. Thanksgiving, maybe. But here's the thing, okay? I had plenty of time then to ponder on it, didn't I? And since I knew that this sermon was coming pretty soon, I had to think about it a lot. and I had to research it a little bit. You see, God does so because He truly wants us to have wisdom. Do you believe that? God wants us to have wisdom. And He doesn't hold it against us when we didn't ask for or use the wisdom before. That's stunning to me because we would do that. We would hold it against somebody. I told you so. I'm not going to give it now. You didn't take it when I offered it. God doesn't do that. The Bible says, thank you. yeah, thank the Lord for that. You see, people don't think that way. We will almost always say something like, well, why didn't you ask for help or advice before now? I forever ask my kids that, you know? Or why do you want my advice or help now? It's almost like a, mm, you know, right? Or perhaps, oh, yeah, now you come around. You see, God doesn't do it that way. He is simply overjoyed that we have grown in our faith to ask for wisdom, and He gives it generously and without hesitation or reservation. I'm so glad God's not a human. He has no interest in making us pay for it or making us feel guilty about our past failures. He simply gives it as a gift and hopes you'll take it and use it. Man, what a great God we have. But to receive it, the Bible says we have to pray in faith. James says so. Tell, it, verse 6 and 7 tells us that anyone who prays without faith ought not pray at all. <laughs> you might as well not pray at all. Neither should they expect, get this, anything from God. There's an awful lot of people who have no faith that only go to God when they can't do it any other way. That's not faith. But they're expecting God to do something. The Bible says He won't do it. I think there's pretty good evidence of that. It's huge, but it's also a sermon for another day. But remember, Peter getting out of the boat. Remember Peter, uh, he's, he's out there in the sea, and, you know, Jesus starts walking toward him on water. Now, I would flip anybody out. You know, you would think, man, I've been at sea too long, right? And so he, he started to have faith. He says, hey, let me come to you if it's really you. Jesus said, well, come on. Friends, this is what I know. If I'm on a ship somewhere, 
and I see Jesus walking on the water, and I say, hey, let me come to you. He says, come on. I'm thinking, mm, maybe not. <laughs> you? Come on, right? But this is a different game. I mean, it was a different time. He had faith at first, sort of. He starts walking on the water, didn't he? And then all of a sudden, the doubt crept in, and what happened? And Jesus had to reach out and grab him, see? That's kind of like my life sometimes. Isn't that yours? I, I look up here and think, oh, you fool. Not really. Well, am, I, am I really any different? Sometimes not. And see, <laughs> Jesus said He had little faith, and we need to change that. We also have to have the right attitude concerning prosperity. In verse 9, the person in Christ who has no riches is spiritually exalted, and Paul agrees. Ephesians 2, 4 to 7, he says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It is by grace that you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us through Christ Jesus. Basically, God wants to bestow riches upon you, but they're up to Him. In verse 10, outside of Christ, the person with riches is physically lowered. And Paul agrees here again. In 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17 and 19, in Hebrews 10 and Romans 12, he says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, and you endured in great conflict, full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and, and, and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated, yet suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that yourself had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position and don't be conceited. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. According to James in verses 10 and 11, material possessions pass away as quickly as the flowers of the field hit by the hot, dry east wind off the Arabian desert. That's what he says. And they will never get you into heaven anyway. I like them, but they ain't going to get me there. So put riches or prosperity into perspective, don't you think? Because in the end, point four, triumph comes and we win. Triumph comes and we win. This one's easy. Titus 1, 1 to 3, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now in His appointed season He has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. You see, Jesus promised, friends, that if we persevere, He will give us the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Be patient. Persevere. Have hope. And through it all, be joyful because you know why you're going through it and when you stand, what it brings. Amen? As our worship team comes this morning, 
The Lord never promised you a rose garden. Now, I, I remember that song growing up. Anybody? Oh, my gosh. I put that in your head, didn't I? How many of you have no clue what I'm talking about? Be honest. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're dating yourself. But the fact of the matter is, <laughs> there's a song out there. You never, I, who sang that anyway? I wasn't Loretta Lynn. I was thinking her or Dolly. I couldn't remember. Who? Who's that? Never mind. <laughs> it doesn't matter who's saying it. I know the song, okay? Yeah. <laughs> the Lord pro- never promised us a rose garden in this life. Rather, we win, friends, through trial, not through the rose garden. Because life isn't always rosy, you see. And we count it all joy to fall into many trials. David Jones, the professor of Christian ethics and associate dean for theological studies at Southeastern Baptist University uh, or Seminary in North Carolina, he writes a book with Russell Woodbridge in 2010 called, get this, Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Has the prosperity gospel overshadowed the gospel of Christ? It's a tremendous right. It really, really is. And this is what he said. He outlines five errors of prosperity gospel thinking. One, the Abrahamic covenant is a means to material entitlement. Well, friends, we know this can't be true because God never promises that. Okay? Number two, Jesus' atonement extends to the sin of material poverty. This isn't true either because material poverty isn't related to your faith nor your spiritual status with God, so it isn't a sin. Okay? you got to understand that. Number three, Christians give in order to gain material compensation from God. It's true that you can't outgive God, and He certainly wants us to give sacrificially. I don't doubt that. But God also loves and desires a cheerful, cheerful giver, not one who does it to see what God can do for them. Amen? Number four, faith is a self-generated spiritual force that leads to prosperity. <laughs> well, I didn't have any trouble debunking that because first, faith doesn't come from us. It comes from the Holy Spirit that lives within us based on the proof of God in our hearts and minds. And that alone doesn't lead to life prosperity but it will certainly lead to spiritual prosperity. That's a fact, okay? Number five, prayer is a tool to force God to grant prosperity. (laughs) Friends, listen, God obviously wants communion with us. There's no question about that. He wants to talk with us. He wants to be with us, and He wants us to be with Him. But God is no respecter of persons. He has zero obligation to give us anything. He wants to bestow His blessings upon us. The Bible is clear about that. But praying with an entitled attitude is definitely not the way to receive it. Anybody? Okay? Dr. Jones goes on in his book to say this. And this is, this is brilliant. In light of the scripture, the prosperity gospel is fundamentally flawed. At bottom, it is a false gospel because of its faulty view of the relationship between God and man. Simply put, if the prosperity gospel is true, then grace is obsolete. God is irrelevant. And man is the measure of all things. Whether they're talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the atonement, giving, faith, or prayer, prosperity teachers turn the relationship between God and man into a quid pro quo transaction. In other words, it means something for something. If you do this, I'll give that. We might do that here on earth, but God does not. In fact, I deserve nothing that my Savior gave me. I deserve nothing of what He did. And I certainly don't deserve eternity, but He gave it anyway. And all I have to do is live for Him. That, my friends, is a reality. And if I do this or that with God, and I expect Him to demand that He do this or that for me, that's just not going to work. Because God has never made a deal with anybody, and He ain't going to start right now. But what He has done 
has promised us his richest blessings on this earth and eternity in heaven when our time here is finished. And for that, he does indeed require your fully surrendered heart and a life that proves that it is.